This is the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Weather Lounge. I am your host, meteorologist Mike Mahalik, in for Brad Miller, who will rejoin us in the next podcast. Anyway, I'd like to thank you for joining us this week, and today it's all about CSI weather. Yeah, we're talking about forensic meteorology, what it is, how it's used. We also have several of our forensic meteorologists in on this podcast, including forensic director Sherilyn Patrick. Also, meteorologist Zach Chabala will be joining us in a special cameo by our president and CEO of Weatherworks, Frank Lombardo. We'll also have a special simulated weather expert testimony during the second half of the program to give you kind of a feel of what our meteorologists might be questioned on during a weather-related case in, uh, and on the stand. But first, before we get on to that, Let's take a quick little break, and after that, we'll talk to Sherilyn and Zach all about what is forensic meteorology. So stick around. Has your life or property been impacted by the weather? Are you involved in legal cases or claims? Turn to WeatherWorks, the experts in weather-related litigation. Our staff of certified consulting meteorologists have produced thousands of past weather reports for the insurance and legal industry. If your case involves personal injury, property damage, loss of business, workman's comp, or other weather-related matters, we are your experts. For more information, visit pastweatherreport.com or call us at 908-867-8350. When you think weather, think WeatherWorks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Weather Lounge. Again, I'm meteorologist Mike Mahalik, and we'll be talking about forensic meteorology. So without further ado, let's welcome Forensic Director Sherilyn Patrick. How you doing, Sherilyn? Hi, good. How's everything with you, Mike? Oh, we're good. You know, uh, I wish I had my co-host Brad with me today, but uh, we're um, just going with one host for this interview, so you guys will have to bear with me a little bit. No problem. <laughs> um, but uh, also, uh, I think you brought one of uh, your forensic staff with you, right? Uh, Zach Chabala? Uh, Zach, yep. how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All right, great. Well, I'm really happy to talk about this because I think a lot of people don't realize that forensic meteorology is even a thing. Um, they see people giving the weather on uh, TV and on the radio, um, even on social media. But when you think about forensic weather, I don't think a whole lot of people know what that's all about. So um, just real quick, um, Zach, could you explain to us what what is forensic meteorology? Yeah, so forensic meteorology really is the reconstruction of weather for a certain time and location. And it usually is related to a, you know, a, a case for litigation or an insurance claim. Uh, so we're going back investigating the weather and kind of recreating it for, for whoever is looking for it. It's uh, really interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, like I said, a lot of people probably don't realize um, that weather can be a part of a legal case. Uh, I mean, I didn't think about it when I first started here in WeatherWorks, and that was over 12 years ago. <laughs> so I don't know how you guys uh, felt about that. I mean, did you guys even know about this when you were hired here? It um, it started to become more prominent. I remember hearing about it at the American Meteorological Society conference. Okay. Um, and then when I was looking for weather jobs, I realized that Frank here at WeatherWorks did it. Um, and it was the first thing when I inquired about a job here at Weatherworks yeah. was I really want to get into forensic meteorology. Oh, cool. Um, but prior to that, yeah, it really was an unknown field um, in the meteorology world. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And and the funny thing is, is that even when going back to when I was hired and, and I did my resume and all that, um, uh, I didn't realize that what we did at Weatherworks provided forecasts for snowplow contractors and things like that so i didn't even put that really in my resume because i was like well what do they think what, what do they care if i i worked for a landscaping company or something it didn't have to do with the weather but <laughs> but apparently it mattered a big deal and, and i had no idea so that was a uh, <clears throat> a big fail on my part um when uh i was uh, first hired here but they still uh, gave me the job which i'm very grateful for 
Um, but we got a little ahead of ourselves there talking about forensic meteorology. But first, let's get a little background on you guys, uh, starting with Sherilyn. Um, what got you into weather and where'd you go to pursue your degree? So I got into weather when I was younger. I was always into the science field and just watching uh, the Discovery Channel TLC back when they used to show really informative <laughs> um, documentaries. I got into the uh, tornado outbreaks. So 1999, oh, cool. 1991 and seeing a lot of that footage. Um, so that's what really kind of got me into the weather and wanted to pursue it at a young age. Um, and I eventually fell in love right here in New Jersey, Rutgers University. Okay. Uh, that's where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, and then I actually went a little bit further and got my master's degree at Mississippi State University. And what was the uh, master's degree on? Because you probably have like atmospheric uh, science or something like that from Rutgers and meteorology. But what was the bachelor's or uh, master's? Excuse me. Yeah, the master's, it was a, a geoscience master's with okay. a focus in applied meteorology. Oh, very good. So applied meteorology, what exactly is that? Applied meteorology is essentially using the meteorology field towards applications. So here we're forecasting for snow and ice contractors, property managers. We use it for forensic cases. Um, it's really putting it toward the real life application as opposed to just looking at all the mathematics side as you sure. would in your bachelor's or maybe if you were going for a PhD. Yeah, I remember that was a big part of... Uh... <laughs> the uh, bachelor's degree when I was going through Penn State myself. But uh, over to Zach, uh, how about yourself? Uh, what got you into weather and where did you go? Yeah, so I'm not like a lot of people who like love the weather or remember a specific storm right from when they were young that really got them interested. To be 100% honest, um, I just didn't want to go to school. And I knew that getting snow days was like the easiest way to not go to school. So I started looking at the weather when I was, I don't know, like sixth, seventh grade. Um, I had no idea what I was looking at, but I knew that uh, blue meant snow, and that was the easiest way to get off of school. So that was really what honestly started me into weather. Okay. Um, like yourself, I went to Penn State. Um, I've been yeah. going to Penn State for football games since I was less than a year old, and it just was natural that that's where I went. Perfect. So um, did you have any specialties at Penn State as far as a different um, avenue? I know there was a few options within the major. Um, I went and did the forecasting and broadcasting communications. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but whatever, whatever the forecasting track was, that was what I went through. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, obviously, with your communications background, that probably helps you out a little bit uh, when you yeah. have to you know, make reports and stuff for the forensic uh, team. Yeah, just overall, forensics and forecasting, being able to communicate with people effectively is, you know, it's a huge communication in the field overall is just a huge thing. Um, you know, being able to put the science into terms that people understand, and it's the same thing with attorneys being able to, um, you know, write a report that's that's understandable mm -hmm. um, is is a huge deal. So, yeah, definitely a communication background is, is a huge help. Okay. Um, so... I'm hearing about different types of backgrounds uh, from you guys uh, with applied meteorology and communications. Um, but, Sherilyn, are there really credentials that you have to have uh, to get into forensic meteorology? So really all you need is a bachelor's in uh, meteorology or atmospheric science. Mm -hmm. um, but to really kind of strengthen yourself as an expert, it is important to take continuing classes, um, go for that, you know, master's or maybe PhD degree. Um, I know the American Meteorological Society, they have a certification, the Certified Consulting Meteorologist. Mm -hmm. um, once you have enough experience in the field, you do enough cases, go to trial testimony, um, you can apply for that designation. Um, and it really helps strengthen you as an expert. Um, you can also take classes in snow and ice management. So regarding de-icers, abrasives, um, proper snow and ice removal uh, techniques, uh, that is helpful as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I do know that uh, one of our forensic meteorologists, he actually has the um, SIMA um, Advanced Snow Manager certification. Um, so it's Again, a minimum of a bachelor's degree, but you definitely want to continue in adding on to your qualifications to really bolster yourself as an expert. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's 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 good to know because you know many people might 
just wondering, well, can they pull anybody off the street or what, what's going right. on here? But obviously, <laughs> you at least need that base in, uh, um, in Bachelor's of Science in Meteorology. Um, but, um, you know, I'm thinking about Forensic Meteorology a little bit more, and, and people are probably right, right away going to, um, you know, uh, the CSI program they're watching or, or whatever it might be and thinking about these crime scene investigations, things like that. But um, my question to you guys is, and I guess we'll start with Zach, um, what kind of cases do you really work on uh, in the forensic field? I mean, is it only a certain type or a majority of a certain type? Or, um, you know, what's kind of the, uh, the case uh, load there? Yeah, so the majority of the cases we work on are slip and fall related. Um, but, you know, that's not all we do. Like I said, that's the majority. We do property damage from severe weather, whether it be hail damage or strong winds. Um, we've done electrocution cases. We do lighting cases um, with sun glare and things like that. We've worked on flood cases, drowning cases, all sorts of stuff. Um, like I said, slip and falls is our main thing, but pretty much anything that that the weather could impact, we've probably done a case related to it. Wow. And now, like, who actually gets these reports? I mean, you guys obviously produce uh, several different reports, um, mm -hmm. but who is it for? Is it just attorneys or is it for other organizations or for just somebody who needs a past weather report? Yeah, really, it could be anyone. Um, again, a lot of it's law firms and attorneys. We do both plaintiff and defense. Um, but insurance companies for weather-related claims will request uh, certified past weather reports from us. Mm -hmm. Engineering firms, um, you know, an attorney might hire an engineer for a case, um, and they need a weather report. So we'll produce weather reports for engineering firms. And then sometimes just individuals will come to us um, and say, hey, we need a re weather report. Or sometimes our own clients even will, will need a weather report for something or another, and they'll come to us. So really, you could be anyone. The, we've, we've done it for individuals, attorneys, insurance companies. A lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important to know um, uh, that it doesn't have to be an attorney, right? Um, mm -hmm. If if you are, you know, maybe you're a snowplow contractor and you had somebody slip and fall and you want to get a report about it. I mean, that's probably, you know, something you might want to or, or to prove that, hey, you know, like it, it was, wasn't possible or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of different applications to this. I mean, I think I remember even uh, uh, Frank talking one time, our CEO, uh, Frank Lombardo, talking about one time he had to do like a criminal type case about footprints in the snow or something like that. Um, that was uh, quite a mystery. I don't know if you guys remember uh, that story, if Frank ever told you that one. It sounds I... vaguely familiar, but I personally don't know what the case was. I'm sure if I go into the archives, I can dig it up. <laughs> sure. I love looking for those oddball cases that we've done. Yeah. Uh, those are always interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I forget exactly what it was all about, but I know it was like, was it possible for footprints to even be in the snow? Because was there snow on the ground to begin with from the recent uh, storm? And it, it was something like that. Um, so it like either verified or, or debunked whatever the one testimony was from somebody. I don't know. It was something like that. Maybe one day we'll have Frank answer that question for us here <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was certainly an interesting case. Um, but, you know, getting back to forensic meteorology here at Weatherworks, uh, Sherilyn, um, tell me a little bit about your team. Um, uh, who's, you know, Tell me like how it's structured, like who's all within the department, what kind of uh, seniority everybody has and uh, the credentials. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, obviously we have uh, our CEO, Frank Lombardo. He was the first forensic meteorologist here at Weatherworks uh, going on 40 years hmm. of doing these, you know, forensic reports ever since the 80s. Um, so he kind of oversees the department. Frank. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Frank, if you're listening. Um, but he essentially oversees the department. Um, he does do, you know, a couple cases from time to time, especially with uh, his particular long-term clients. Um, we also have our uh, senior forensic meteorologist, Thomas M. Else, 
Um, as I mentioned before, regarding the Certified Consulting Meteorologist designation, as well as the um, Advanced Snow Manager, Frank and Tommy have both the CCM, um, but then Tommy went a little bit further and got that ASM, that Advanced Snow Manager designation. Um, and as the Senior Forensic Meteorologist, I mean, he's got 23 years of experience. Uh, he essentially does most of the cases here at Weatherworks, uh, especially slip and fall cases. Um, he's been to testimony numerous times, uh, probably at least 30 to 40 times, um, ever since he's been doing forensic reports back in the 90s. So Tommy's kind of our lead guy in terms of doing the reports. And then there's myself as the forensic director. Um, I started about six years ago, uh, worked my way up the chain, eventually became head honcho in terms of managing the department. Um, and I make sure everything essentially runs smoothly, that we're, you know, making sure we meet clients' needs, um, that all the meteorologists here meet their goals, um, going through the training process. Um, you know, Zach Chabala that we have right here, he's just about ready to be a full-fledged forensic meteorologist. He's mm -hmm. done a number of reports. Um, I directly oversee him. I've reviewed his reports. They're great. They're probably better than when I first started <laughs> signing off on my own reports. Look out, Sherilyn, um, that's coming. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, him and I have been working, especially on hail cases. Okay. We've been doing a lot of those. Um, and Zach does a fantastic job with them. So I've been giving some of my own cases over to Zach <laughs> instead. <laughs> well. Um, well, Zach and needs then, that uh, experience though. So it's not- it, uh, Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty much trial by fire. Quite yeah. literally, um, when it comes to forensic meteorology, before you even become a forensic meteorologist here at our firm, you mm -hmm. learn about the different data sources and you do data collection, learning mm -hmm. all about the data and how to interpret the data. Then you actually start doing analyses. So you start doing weather tables mm -hmm. um, where you're like, oh, what's the high and low temperature each day? How much precipitation fell each day? Um, and then you move on to writing the actual paragraphs of the report. And then once you get to a certain uh, level um, where we feel comfortable just letting you fly, then you start to sign off on your own reports. But again, it's all, all part of the training process. And I think we have a nice hierarchy here in our yeah. department. No, absolutely. And uh, once upon a time, I used to sign off on my own reports. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> um, you but... have that win case that almost went to trial and you almost... <laughs> Yeah, that you was almost an, gotta go. <laughs> that was an interesting one, and I've only been at trial uh, one other time, um, so that was that was certainly an interesting case. I remember that one. That was the one I believe it was um, where a tree. Um, uh, there was a severe thunderstorm in the area, and a tree fell down, and um, and uh, I think it might have either injured really badly or or, or killed a person. I'm not sure. Um, but, um, it, I had to go through and I had to figure out, uh, where the wind's high enough to possibly cause that tree to come down, um, and, and all of that. So I think I'm right on that, right? Sherilyn, that was yeah, the case. I'm that... pretty sure the person was severely injured. I don't think they passed away, but they oh, were definitely goodness. severely injured. <laughs> but still you're talking about, I mean, the reason why we, <clears throat> the whole reason why we do this weather reconstruction is for plaintiff and defense it's a matter of verifying the weather conditions. And if somebody mm -hmm. is injured and injured for the rest of their life, um, you know, it's going to involve money. <laughs> sure. no, absolutely. So, um, so I'm just uh, wondering, you know, people are probably thinking, you know, past weather, how do you even go about finding, you know, what, what the weather was in the past? Uh, how, how do you, how do you go about doing that? So maybe if, uh, if somebody, maybe Zach could take us through that, like, where do you start when you're starting to research a case? What are we looking at first? Um, you know, what, what are we doing to even get that started off the ground? Sure. Um, so where I would start is with, um, automated surface observing station, uh, weather data. That's basically the weather data that is at the bigger airports across the country. Mm -hmm. That's generally considered the most reliable and accurate weather data. Um, so taking that weather data and, and kind of plotting that and determining, you know, which, which airports date, what airport data is most representative to, uh, you know, the incident location is where I would start. And all that data is archived by the national centers of environmental information. Um, pretty much all of the government data is you could get through there. 
Um, you could get supplementary data, um, co-op data, which is, is basically rainfall and snowfall data you could get um, through there as well. COCO-ROS, which is a private observing network that has a little bit of a denser network. So again, they have rain and snowfall data. A lot of times you'll be able to get, um, you know, COCO-ROS stations that are a little bit closer to the incident location than, than the airports, mm -hmm. uh, just because, like I said, the network's a little bit denser. Um, and then there's a bunch of other, uh, you know, weather observing networks that that has temperature data and other things like that that you could plot and, you know, supplement that that reliable airport data. Um, so, again, you could have an incident location that's 20 or 30 miles away from an airport, different elevation, you know, different weather conditions. It's not always going to be the same. So getting some of that closer supplemental data is always important to really make sure that you're getting the most site-specific and accurate report as possible. And then we'll also pull National Weather Service products, watches, warnings, advisories, statements, the forecast that they issued mm -hmm. um, to you know, see if how well a, an event was forecasted. Um, was there lead time to this event? Was it a surprise event? How, you know, how long was it in the forecast? So we'll pull that data too, um, to, you know, make sure that there was lead time and things of that nature. Wow. I mean, I, I mean, uh, me being a part of it again, it was, it was years ago. Um, but I remember there was a lot of information there that you had to go through. I mean, these reports are very, very thorough and I'm sure Sherilyn, you could speak to that. Um, this isn't something that you just pull a station or two and you just start writing this up. There's a lot involved um, with coming up with these uh, past weather reports. Very much so. Yeah. Um, but I think um, what's uh, something that I, I think is interesting is uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there might be thinking like, what are some of the most interesting things that you've got, you've investigated? Um, you know, uh, like I said, mine might've just been the, uh, the wind damage on that tree that injured somebody. Um, but I mean, how about yourself, Sherilyn? What was one of the most interesting cases? I mean, not naming names or <laughs> anything like that or <laughs> dates or locations, but, um, just, uh, just something that was really interesting to you. Um, I would say the most interesting case I did personally was a DUI case. Um, the defendant, essentially said that he was a couple clicks away from a policeman and the policeman came over to him because he smelled alcohol on his breath after he got out of his vehicle hmm. um, and got charged with the DUI. So the defendant said there was no way that he could have smelt it because it was too windy. Hmm. Uh, so that was definitely the most interesting case. And, you know, just trying to explain that it's not a matter of how windy it is or, are you also upstream or downstream right. <laughs> of the policeman? Because if the wind is just blowing it towards the policeman, sure, it's plausible. Um, but if it's going in the opposite direction, then sure, it would have been difficult for the policeman to have even determined that. Right. Um, so that was definitely the most interesting one. See, that's interesting. Like, now, who out there would have thought that weather would have been involved <laughs> in a DUI case? You know, here you're thinking, okay, the guy had too much to drink. You know, <laughs> he, he got pulled over pretty straightforward. But here, you know, with the, what direction the wind's going, if there even was wind that uh, day or night, you know, that that's just, that's amazing to me that weather would get involved in that. Um, but Zach, um, how about yourself? Um probably the most interesting one that I've worked on is a, a capsized boat out in the Atlantic ocean. Um, there were some drownings with it. Um, but it just, it, it was interesting because again, like I said, a lot of the stuff that I work on is property damage. And a lot of the other stuff we do is, is slip and fall related. To, so, you know, having to pull some, some, you know, buoy data and go over wave height and uh, time periods between waves and different things like that was an interesting little, twist to what I normally do here. Yeah, that is definitely, definitely interesting. And uh, again, another, another aspect of whether you wouldn't think about, um, but uh, you know, I'm thinking for myself what the most interesting case was, but honestly, guys, I was pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on a lot of slip and fall cases, which are basically <laughs> determining whether or not ice was possible at the time of an accident. 
Um, a lot of them were for uh, insurance uh, claims too. They weren't really going to uh, trial or anything to that effect. Um, but um, you know, the the one thing I would say um, was interesting is is one of the slip and fall cases I worked on. Um, I actually did go to trial for, uh, which was my only, my one and only <laughs> um, trial. Um, that I've been on the stand, and it's quite interesting how that goes down. Um, I remember at one point they go over your uh, your education and whether or not you're qualified to be a weather expert. Uh, I think it's called something. I don't know if one of you can help me out. Uh, uh, it starts with a V. I think it might be. Um, but it does. Give me a second. I got to yeah. think. Um, um, it's it's Latin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, I think Frank might be able to fill us in in the second portion of this yeah. uh, program uh, what the technical term of that uh, uh, credential period is called within the trial. Um, but um, I remember they they said, well, uh, give us your credentials and, and start with your education. So I said, well, you want me to start in college? No, no, start in high school. And I was thinking <laughs> to myself, like, high school? Like, what? Uh, I was captain of of the defense on football team. Uh, I played track and field and threw the javelin. I mean, like, what do you need to know from high school? I mean, general education, right? Um, but uh, yeah, it was just quite interesting when they went through that. And then we got into the case more, and and like I said, it was pretty boring. I would say the one attorney was trying to submit a piece of uh, data and trying to say it was a more of an airport, a more higher first order um, uh, observation station. And uh, I totally shot that down because it definitely was not. And uh, I think it was a Coca Rahaz station, actually. Oh, jeez. Uh, and they were trying <laughs> to submit it as more of a higher level, like uh, Philadelphia International Airport type thing. Right. Um, no, it was not. Um, but um, um, so, so those are some interesting cases. I know... Uh, like I said, Frank has some interesting cases, too, he's worked on in the past. Um, I know there's definitely lightning cases that we've worked on, too, um, uh, in the past. And I don't know, Sherilyn, if you've worked on any of those, but I know we get pretty specific with those, uh, like the Google Earth maps of where the strikes could have happened and all of that. Yeah, I personally didn't work on that case, but um, the director before me, Sam D'Alba, he mm. worked closely with Frank on that. And it was a, a big case out in Atlantic City where these workers were working on a um, you know, new casino hotel and they had nowhere to go, couldn't escape. And there was a thunderstorm coming and struck one guy. Mm. Um, another guy had, um, I think he got electrocuted, but he wasn't you know, terribly um, horribly injured. He was injured, but not horribly. And then another guy had a heart attack just watching it. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was a very high profile case and it took a lot of, you know, was there advance notice? That was the big thing. Um, and there was even mm. just days prior, there was the risk for thunderstorms. You could see the thunderstorm coming at you yeah, sure. and then being able to plot those lightning strikes. So we do use, um, it's called the solid data and they can actually provide nearly site-specific lightning strike data. Wow. And then we plot it with the incident location over Google Earth, showed how many strikes occurred either at the property or within the surrounding area um, to essentially help out that case. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even even workers that were uh, building a new house where, where I live, um, they were on the roof way too long. I almost went out there myself and was like, you guys got to get down. This looks incredibly dangerous. I was just thinking, this is a this is a lawsuit uh, waiting to happen. Um, but fortunately, they got down before it got too dangerous. But um, uh, I, I think one last thing, guys, uh, you know, you're talking to me about all types of reports, all types of clients you uh, have worked with. But you have an idea about how many cases you might do in a year? Yeah, for the department as a whole, um, the last couple of years, it's been averaging out to right around 500 reports a year. Wow. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's that's a lot of reports. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, thank you guys for doing such a great job uh, here with our uh, forensic team here at uh, WeatherWorks. Um, but I think one thing that will be most interesting um, to our listeners out there is how that trial goes, how that testimony goes, or 
or how the uh, deposition goes um, in the real world. And um, we're going to give everybody a little bit of a taste of that, right, guys, uh, in the second half? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have... Um, We'll have that in the second half of the program. It'll be really interesting to go over the case. I know we'll have a our special guest, uh, Frank Lombardo, in on that. Um, I think he may be uh, sitting in as one of the attorneys. Uh, we'll see how that all goes. Um, but, uh, guys, thanks for being with us in this first portion of the uh, podcast here. But then, like I said, we'll be back in the second half here. So everybody listening out there, don't go away. Hey, everybody. Well, how many times have you been burned by a weather forecast? Well, probably a few, and it might have cost your business thousands. WeatherWorks is different. We have over 30 meteorologists to give you forecasts, notifications, and weather advice 24-7. Now, that could certainly help when it comes down to making those crucial decisions, but there are even more products than that in which WeatherWorks offers, from weather data to historical reports. Call us at 908-850-8600 or visit us on the web at weatherworksinc.com. And oh, don't forget, when you think weather, think WeatherWorks. Welcome back, everyone. I'm meteorologist Mike Mahalik, and this is the second part of our forensic podcast. And I'm joined with meteorologist Sherilyn Patrick and also Zach Chabala from our forensic team. How are you guys doing today? Good, thank you. How's everything with you, Mike? Oh, it's good, and we're Don't ready. Don't forget me. <laughs> That's right. I was just about to introduce our special guest for this segment, and that is the CEO of WeatherWorks, Frank Lombardo. Frank, how are you doing today? Yeah. I'm doing good. It's going to be fun. <laughs> okay. So this is what's going to happen in our second half of the podcast. So basically what we're going to do is go over a mock testimony um, that would typically happen in a uh, forensic case that we would do. Sherilyn is going to be the plaintiff attorney and uh, Zach Chabala is going to be the weather expert working for the plaintiff. Our president, Frank, he will be the defense attorney. And uh, I think he's going to be a pretty good defense attorney. What do you think? <laughs> let's see. Let's right. see, if I can, uh, see if I can crack that expert. <laughs> okay. Okay, so a little background on the case before we get started. So this is a slip and fall case that occurred in New Jersey on Christmas Day. So the plaintiff or the person that is suing is claiming that she slipped and fell on ice and that the contractor was negligent by allowing ice to form. So the defendant in this case is the snowplowing contractor. So our weather expert is working for the plaintiff. So we all know that ice forms at 32 degrees, but sometimes it could form a little bit warmer than that. And it's interesting, and we'll definitely go out and find more as this case continues. So, guys, let's just uh, start it off. Sherilyn, I think you're going to start it off here as the plaintiff attorney. Mr. Chabala, thank you for coming here today. We're here to take your deposition in the case of Mary Doe versus Crimson Palace, in which a slip and fall occurred in Morganville, New Jersey, on Christmas Day of 2016. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, did I reach back out to you in September um, of 2017 regarding this matter? Yes, you did. Uh, and what's your understanding of the particulars of this case? Based on what you explained in your letter to our office, the plaintiff slipped and fell on a patch of ice in the parking lot. Great. Now, based on my request, I understand that you produced a certified past weather report uh, on this matter also back in September of 2017. Do you recall authoring this report? Yes, I do. Okay, well, that's just the opening of the case, guys. Um, so after this, there's a part that comes up that, Frank, you could probably help me out a little bit. Basically, the, the we're going over question. the credentials of people, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but you can do a better job. Wadir, and it's, the, um, it's basically uh, the qualification section of an expert. Uh, think of an expert as just a regular witness, but an expert is allowed to provide an opinion. So if you're a witness in a car accident and some, you can't provide an opinion. You just say, this is what I saw. However, an expert 
provides an opinion. I saw the two cars crash, and the reason they crashed was because there was snow and ice on the road. That's an opinion. So Mr. Shabala, in this case, will likely form an opinion. But first, we have to qualify him. First, we have to determine, does he really know what he's talking about? Or is he just someone that's shelling down off the, on the street? <laughs> Pulled off the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny that we go through this section because I remember a case that I was actually a weather expert on, and they had me start all the way in high school. So it was it was quite odd. I, I felt like, I should I say I was captain of the defense on the football team as a qualification? Absolutely. <laughs> now, you, you only say that if you were working for the defense, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Sherilyn, let's get off with the uh, voir dire, if I said that correctly. So according to your CV here, which I'll label as Exhibit 1, you are a forensic meteorologist. What is a forensic meteorologist, and how do you even become to be one? So a forensic meteorologist is a meteorologist who reconstructs past weather for a given date, time, and location. Uh, more often than not, it's for legal purposes or for insurance industries. Um, one requires a bachelor's degree in meteorology or atmospheric science, uh, but you can supplement that with advanced degrees, additional classes, and certifications such as the Certified Consulting Meteorologist designation from the American Meteorological Society, which I have. Great. And how long have you been working at WeatherWorks in this capacity? About 10 years. Thank you. Uh, if there are no other objections, I'd like to admit Mr. Chabala as a forensic weather expert in this matter. Uh, no objections from me, Your Honor. Okay, so that was the first part of that uh, credential section. Um, now, we did take a, a few uh, assumptions here, uh, just for the case, about uh, some credentials of uh, Mr. Chabala, as we like to call him in this case. But mm -hmm. um, <laughs> from here on out, though, uh, Frank, I, I think we're going to go into the main testimony. So... What is going to happen in this section, and, and, and how is it kind of laid out? Well, I mean, this is the section. This is really where the attorney will typically set the foundation for what Mr. Shabala did. There are no opinions yet. Saves the good stuff for the end. But this is how did you arrive at your opinion. So it's what data did you collect? What scientific evidence did you review? Uh, what kind of charts? Uh, this is where the charts are presented, things like that. Um, so uh, it, it, it's exciting. Uh, this is done in front of a jury. The prior section, the voir dire, sometimes is done outside the jury presence. So the jury is not biased by the qualifications of the expert in often cases. But at this point, everyone is listening. Interesting, because I'm trying to remember back to the case where I was on. I feel like the jury might have been there when they were going through my qualifications. Um, sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Sometimes the judge wants them out of the room. Um, and it depends, I think, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But uh, I've been in both, in both instances. And it's usually a lot tougher than what Mr. Shabala had to go through. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we also don't want our listeners to go through uh, listening to where Chabala went to school and where, went to high school, and, and how, went what, to, how many cases, who did, you, and, who did you date in tenth grade? Yeah, uh, or, that in and of itself will take ten or fifteen minutes. Were you on homecoming court? Uh, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, but anyway, um, so Sherilyn, I think take it away here. We'll start with the main testimony. Mr. Chavala, how did you come up with your weather analysis for 999 Any Place Drive in Morganville, New Jersey, for the time period of December 16th to 25th, 2016? I utilized a variety of weather sources surrounding and relating to the incident location. They include official surface weather observations, record of climatological observations, sunrise and sunset times, Doppler radar images, and other National Weather Service products. I'm going to admit your report here is expert as exhibit number two. Uh, can you tell me about the specific weather observations you used for this analysis? Yes, I reviewed official weather data from Lakehurst Naval Air Engineering Station, Belmar Airport, Newark International Airport, Somerset Airport, and the Trenton Mercer Airport. 
Now, I noticed these sites are anywhere from 15 to 30 miles away from the site of the accident. Did you examine any other types of weather stations in your report that are closer to the accident site? Yes, I utilized five other weather stations called mesonets that were located 10 miles or less from the incident location, as well as another five stations from the private network COCORAS, which stands for Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network at the National Weather Service-run co-op sites. COCORAS and co-op, uh, what type of information do these stations provide? These stations can provide valuable information regarding precipitation, daily snowfall, and existing snow and ice conditions on the ground at approximately 7 a.m. Unlike the ASOS and AWAS stations, these stations only report once a day. However, they provide valuable information closer to the actual incident location. So, one final question so that I'm perfectly clear. Are the sets of weather, da weather data that you are using, are they part of the best practices or standards for meteorologists? Yes, absolutely. They, these sets of data are the standard in the industry that are used to reconstruct weather at accident sites or for researching any prior weather events. And I'll break in here a little bit, guys. So you're going over the weather stations that you used um, during your report here and, and all of that. So how, how does this work? Like if you have a location um, and we're trying to figure out what those weather conditions were in past. How are you using this data to, you know, formulate what happened uh, at a particular location? Yeah. So essentially <laughs> you want to create a, you know, a cross section around the incident location. So you have, you know, data surrounding the location. Um, ideally, you know, the closer the data, the better. So it's more representative of the location that's in question. Um, so, you know, we, we mentioned that the, uh, some of the stations were 15 to, to 30 miles away, especially the airport data. That's why some additional data was supplemented that was a little bit closer to the uh, location in question. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we're not just taking a, an airport that's, you know, so 15 miles away and saying, hey, that's what happened here at uh, this particular town. You know, so we'll, we'll definitely get in closer. We'll, we'll take a cross section like Zach was saying, and we get those uh, you know, we kind of fill in the gaps to figure out what's happening there. Um, but uh, sorry for the interruption, but we'll get on to the rest of the report here right now. So, Sherilyn? Thanks for clarifying the weather data you utilize. So, you know, now that we're getting into, let's talk about the actual weather conditions. Uh, what did you find in the days leading up to December 25th, 2016? Uh, for your reference here, I actually duplicated and enlarged the following table. Uh, that will be marked as Exhibit 3 from your report to help the jury follow along. So as you can see, there is a snow to rain event on December 17th that resulted in approximately 1.2 to 1.8 inches of snow, then some rain showers on the 18th and periods of rain on the 24th. High temperatures were fairly mild for the end of December, however many nights did fall well below freezing as you could see on the table. And in the hours leading up to the time of the slip and fall, which occurred at 7.30. Um, at 3.30 p.m., the temperature was in the low 50s under sunny skies with light winds. The temperature gradually fell into the mid-30s by 7.30 p.m. under mainly clear skies and calm winds. There, there was no precipitation that occurred during the calendar day, nor any naturally precipitated snowpack on exposed, undisturbed, and untreated ground surfaces. So what was the exact temperature at 7.30 p.m.? It was 34 to 35 degrees at 7.30. Let me stop you guys there. So, yep. Frank, what is the why are we going over the conditions before the actual time of the incident? Why why is this even important to the case when it's not even the day of the accident? Well, again, this this goes back to the expert setting up what he believes are the conditions or scientific conditions that lead up to his conclusion. Remember, this is all going to come down to an expert opinion. That's why he's the expert, because he can provide an opinion as a, as a witness. So what he needs to do is he's building that foundation. And sometimes it's months. Uh, I've worked on cases where you need to look at weather conditions over a series of months. Um, in this particular case, he's establishing whether or not the ground was wet, whether or not there was precipitation falling, whether or not uh, there might have been drying, 
Um, so he, he's setting the stage. We don't know exactly the stage for what yet, because he hasn't quite given that answer yet, but I think he will very soon in the next section. But that, that's what he's establishing. He's just building that foundation. All right. Thanks for the clarification, Frank. And uh, so we established that it's 34 to 35 degrees at 7.30 a.m. So, Sherilyn, let's uh, continue. Mr. Chabala, can we go over your expert opinions on page 10? Sure. So, in your conclusion number three here, you indicated that based on photographs of the incident area, uh, that there were puddles as a result of some kind of settlement or great depression that formed in front of the parking spaces where my client slipped and fell. That's correct. The photographs I examined clearly showed areas where water collected into puddles. Based on that conclusion, would you say that the precipitation events you previously mentioned on December 17th, 18th, and the 24th would have accumulated and formed puddles even long after the given dates? Yes, absolutely. So, as a result, there likely was some sort of accumulation, whether it be water, ice, snow, whatever, in these depressions on December 25th. Yeah, objection, Your Honor. She's uh, leading the witness. Zach, you can still answer the question. As stated in my conclusion number four, each morning from December 19th through the 23rd, puddles at the subject property would have been exposed to both air and ground temperatures well below 32 degrees and subsequently formed ice. What were the temperatures from the 19th through the 23rd? On my chart, you could see that on December 19th, the high temperature was 31 to 32 degrees and the low was 24 to 25. On the 20th, the high was 35 to 37 and the low was 14 to 15. On the 21st, the high was 41 to 43 and the low was 23 to 25. On the 22nd, the high was 50 to 52 and the low was 28 to 29. And on the 23rd, the high was 45 to 46 degrees with a low of 29 to 30 degrees. So now in conclusion number five, you stated that even though the air temperature at the time of the incident was 34 to 35 degrees, the ground temperatures were still cold enough to support the formation of ice prior to my client's incident. Can you explain that further? Sure. On clear and calm nights, similar to the evening of the 25th, the ground radiates heat very efficiently. Uh, the temperatures provided in my report are the air temperatures, which are approximately measured five to seven feet above the ground. As a result, the temperature at or near the ground can often be several degrees cooler than the air temperature. And what are you basing this conclusion on? The National Weather Service in Aberdeen, South Dakota published such an informative article back in 2013, which I directly quoted in my conclusion number five. Uh, additionally, parts of my job responsibilities includes forecasting for a wide variety of clients across the Mid-Atlantic, including New Jersey, where I have to forecast ice formation regularly. I've actually witnessed this phenomenon many times in person and via word of mouth from providing weather updates to our clients. Thank you. So I have no just, further questions. So let me just stop it right there. Uh, I'm sure um, some of the listeners out there are probably thinking to themselves, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> 34, <laughs> 35 degrees. I, I don't even understand what uh, what's going on. It's 32 degrees is a freezing point. That's the end of it. That's, you know, the, the black and white. So, uh, you know, Mr. Chabala explained it somewhat, but Frank, can we go in a little more detail about what, what what's going on here? Why is it 32 degrees at the ground possibly? I doubt it is. Um, no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> you're only saying that because no, you're the defense attorney. <laughs> this is true. He's the defense. <laughs> you're asking the defense attorney here. Um, radiative cooling is a, a process in, uh, in the atmosphere that occurs um, uh, when you cut off the source of heating, which is the sun, basically, or daytime. Um, and, you know, as his attorney, uh, Sherilyn, if you want to elaborate more, you can. Um, it's, but, you know, it, you know, you can explain the phenomenon. Basically, the earth cools in the evening. So once the sun set, the ground temperatures are typically colder than the air temperatures. Um, and there are certain conditions that will be favorable for ice formation. There are certain conditions when ice will not form uh, under a 35, 35 degree sky. And then there are certain marginal conditions where you really don't know. It depends on the history of that property, where that property is located. Is it shaded? Is it sunny? So there's a lot of variables. And 
hopefully we'll get into a couple of them with uh, with Zach in a few moments. Well, uh, Frank, I, I think you have your chance. You as the defense attorney, I'm not sure what your name is here. Uh, we can go with Mr. Mo. Mr. Okay. Mo. <laughs> That's the name that was given me. Hello, Mr. Shabala. Uh, my name is Mr. Mo, and I represent the snow and ice contractor in this matter. Hello. Uh, got a couple of questions for you. Um, I'll be brief, basically, um, but I do want to go over your reports a little bit and some of your conclusions. Um, how many reports do you generally prepare in a year that are similar in nature, slip and fall cases that involve snow or ice? Uh, a couple hundred, I would say generally over 200 or 250 a year. All right. So, um, and of those 200, um, uh, is the uh, plaintiff always your, always your client? Not always. Uh, we about do equal for plaintiff and defense. You provide uh, your services, your expertise, and your opinions for both the plaintiff and the defense in these cases. That's um, correct. Are you being paid to testify today? I am. Uh, so the plaintiff is paying you to testify? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So regarding conclusion number three, you stated that there was a settlement grade depression with discoloration within the parking lot. Um, and what photographs are you basing this on? Um, on pages eight and nine of my report, I refer to Google Earth images I obtained of the parking lot area from August of 2013. These clearly show puddling and depressions between parking spaces one and two, where the plaintiff slipped and fell. I was also provided photographs by the plaintiff's counsel taken shortly after the date of incident of the same types of puddling and depressions. And as part of your um, certification that you talked about earlier, uh, have you taken any engineering courses or are you considered an engineer? No, I am not. Uh, have you provided opinions before regarding um, depressions in parking lots or settlement grade um, or drainage? No. Then how can you claim that there was one? There was obvious water puddling in between these two parking spots that had been existing for at least three to four years prior to the date of incident based on the Google Earth images and the provided photographs. I understand, um, but the Google Earth images, are you familiar with the weather conditions that occurred prior to when those images were taken? No, I'm not. Are the photographs that were provided to you by the plaintiff do you know the dates of those photographs and what the weather was prior to those days? Those photographs were taken shortly after the uh, the slip and fall incident. So, all right. So admitting that these photographs in three and four, uh, in exhibits three and four, uh, let's move on for a question. In your conclusion number four, you state that there were that that there were any puddles or wet areas, they would have frozen each morning between December 19th and 23rd because the temperature was well below freezing or well below 32 degrees. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. The freezing temperature is 32 degrees. Is that correct? That is correct. Then how is it that you can possibly say that at the time and date of the alleged accident, when the temperature was 34 to 35 degrees, that ice could have formed. As I stated previously, under clear skies and calm winds, which were the conditions at 7.30 p.m., the ground can radiate faster than the surrounding air. So although the air temperature, which is typically measured five to seven feet above the ground, was 34 to 35 degrees, it is within reason that the ground temperatures were cold enough to support ice. Now on your table that you showed me earlier, um, you indicated that the high temperature on the 22nd was 50 to 55 degrees and the high temperature on the 23rd was 45 to 46 degrees. You also indicated that the weather was fairly mild for the end of December. Now, did these conditions and the 34 to 35 degree temperature at the time of the accident support ice formation at the time of the accident? The radiational cooling that would have occurred leading up to 7.30 p.m. At, before the time of the accident would have been supportive of the ground temperatures being colder than the air temperatures, allowing ice to form. So do you have any supporting weather data that the ground temperature was actually at or below freezing at the location? Were you there or did you measure the actual temperature of the ground? You're telling me that 
the ground temperature was cold because of radiational cooling. But do we have any data to support that? I don't have ground temperature data. I was not there at the day of the accident, but it is my professional opinion based on the science of meteorology that weather conditions supported ground temperatures being colder than the air temperature at the time of the accident. All right, under these conditions that occurred, is there any possibility that ice would not have formed at 35 degrees or 34 or 35 degrees? No. During the course of a deposition, um, it is possible for attorneys to actually ask you a somewhat confusing question. <laughs> so it is acceptable to ask the attorney, I didn't understand the question, can you reword it? <laughs> I couldn't follow it either. I had to think for a second. <laughs> I'm reading my notes here. And, you know, attorneys typically scribble notes as they're... So your as, question, is there do. any way that ICE... You answered the question, but... By the way, Sherilyn, you tell him, she, he already answered the question, asked and answered. Um, <laughs> if you don't understand the question, the proper thing to do is to state, please, can you clarify the question? Yeah. But you answered no. Uh, so you can't prove that there would have been a puddle that could have collected water and resulted on ice on December 25th at the time of the accident. Although I was not physically at the property at that time, I evaluated all the available weather data as well as the supplementary documentation from the National Weather Service regarding the difference between air temperature and ground temperature conditions. And due to the clear and calm conditions, it's within a reasonable degree of scientific and meteorological certainty that ice would have been present prior to the plane of slip and fall due to the depression in the parking lot capable of collecting precipitation from prior events and the ground temperature being cold enough to support the formation of ice. A couple more questions and I'll be done. So you're just assuming this based on what you said is your opinion that ice formed at that location. You're really not sure. I'm not assuming. I'm making an opinion within a meteorological and scientific certainty based on my education, experience in the field and the weather data that I analyzed. Okay, we're almost done, Your Honor. How much certainty, within meteorological certainty, but how much certainty? Can you please repeat the question? You said you're making an opinion within a meteorological and scientific certainty. Mm -hmm. How much certainty? 100%, 90%, 80%? Within I'm just trying to determine whether or not ice always forms at 34 to 35 degrees under these conditions. Within a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. All right, um, let's skip to, is this type of data certifiable? Um, is so, this data certi certified, okay. basically? Let me, let me break in here, guys. <laughs> well, uh, Frank, you're a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, very good example of a defense attorney <laughs> with your cross-examination. Uh, He's good. Zach, Zach is doing a great job, by the way. <laughs> fantastic. You know, yeah, Zach, I, I, I know Frank is uh, throwing you for a loop with a couple of these questions, but that's yeah. pretty much how it goes within a uh, testimony. You are asked things that sometimes uh, you didn't think about prior to the case. Sure. And you yeah. have to make it up on the spot. But, you know, think about Frank's job here, though. He's trying to prove that, you know, you know, maybe that didn't freeze. Maybe it was just water. You know, he's trying to... Just trying to give the jury a little bit of uncertainty. Yeah, a little bit to think about. So maybe the jury's going to say, you know what? I don't know <laughs> if, <laughs> you know, the, the science here is actually going to be accurate enough to predict that ice on the ground. So that's what Frank is trying to uh, accomplish here. So now we're on to the data. Um, is it certifiable is what the next question is that Frank is going into. So... Frank, take it away again and be easy on our buddy Zach here. I will. I will. <laughs> Only a few more questions, Your Honor. Okay, I'm almost done. You know how many times I've heard that in court? I'm almost done. Almost and an done. Hour, hour, hour later, I'm still there giving testimony. Um, <laughs> is this type of data certifiable? Can you certify this type of data, so Mr. Chabot? The ASOS and AWOS data, the COCORAS data, and the co-op data are all certifiable through the National Centers of Environmental Information. 
the data is quality controlled and utilized by government weather forecasters and scientists via uh, a station called MATIS. Uh, MATIS stands for Meteorological Assimilation Data Ingest System. This system utilizes certifiable and non-certifiable weather sources um, and their model output. Um, as I testified earlier, um, and these data sets are part of an accepted standard meteorological practice in the industry to construct weather uh, data at accident sites. All right, uh, let's, let's summarize for you. <clears throat> so just to summarize, you were not at the incident location. That is correct. You weren't there on the date of the incident. You weren't there uh, uh, days leading up to the incident. You did not do a site inspection. Uh, you were never there. Correct. There's a difference between the air temperature and the ground temperature, but you do not have any data from the site to prove that, only an opinion, correct? Correct. And you indicate that the ground could have been at or below freezing, correct? That is correct. You're also not an engineer, correct? I'm not an engineer, correct. But you're making an opinion regarding the depression in the parking lot. Lastly, you indicate that the data that you use, some of the weather sources were not certified, correct? While it may not be considered certified through the National Centers of Environmental Information, the certifiable data only means that the data has not been altered or tampered with. Even the certifiable data has a margin of error. So the certifiable data and the non-certifiable data both have slight margin of error. Thank you very much, Mr. Shabala. I have no further questions. Okay. Well, that was quite interesting, I got to say. Um, <laughs> does our plaintiff attorney have anything else to say? I, I don't think, right? I think we're pretty much wrapped up. Uh, we can end it here. <laughs> These things can go on cross-examination back and forth for, I mean, the one deposition I had was going back and forth for about two and a half hours. You know, you would think they would just be able to finish up and then the one attorney would ask a question and then it turned into this whole rabbit hole. And <laughs> Sure. So for purposes of and our listeners out there, I don't think we want to go through a two and a half hour uh, <laughs> deposition, deposition yeah. on, on a uh, case here. Um, but uh, we just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of a taste of what it would be like for one of our weather experts to be on the stand and taking and having testimony in, in for a case. So um, I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, this is an interesting case with the uh, air temperature above uh, the freezing point and ice still can form in some cases. So um, this was one where there was, uh, you can see there's several arguments at, on both sides. You wouldn't cave. Zach Shabala would not cave. Um, <laughs> and that's he, the idea as a weather expert is that you're supposed to be representing the party that hired you. So you're going to be uh, strict with the weather facts, but you're also going to form an opinion based on whether you're working for plaintiff or defense or some other kind of neutral party. All the opinions are accurately based on science, Mike. Um and uh, Mr. Shabala's uh, opinions uh, were ones that I provided, that Sherilyn has provided <clears throat> in court, in real courts of law. Um, and I had a judge once actually tell me, what do you mean ice can form at 35 degrees? <laughs> and he was, he was, he totally biased the case because he just right. came right out and told me that I couldn't talk about it because <laughs> I was talking about ice forming at 35 and 36 degrees. Everybody knows ice forms at 32. So it's not, it's, it's a common situation that we encounter in court. Yeah, that's interesting. I can't believe the judge would do that. And uh, he's supposed to be a judge, an impartial judge, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, no. So that's quite interesting. Uh, one part of the uh, testimony um, that I wanted to ask you guys about is uh, at one point, I think uh, Frank said, uh, you know, an objection, an objection, your honor. And, but then it said, you could still answer this though. I, I didn't quite understand that. If there's an objection like that, wouldn't that say like, Oh, he's not supposed to answer that question or how I, I objected to the, the, the form of the question that Sherilyn presented. Um, she was leading the witness, meaning she wasn't asking a question, but she was saying 
So there was likely some accumulation in these depressions, as opposed to saying, were there accumulations in those depressions? Okay, I understand. She was putting words in the mouth of the witness. I objected that it was leading the witness, basically. Uh, typically, the judge would say sustained or overruled, and then um, Sherilyn would answer and say, you can a- answer the question, and that's what she did. So we just we left the judge's part out. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, guys, I think that about wraps it up uh, for our mock testimony here that we had this afternoon with, as a weather expert. So... Thanks, everybody, for being here again. Thanks uh, to Sherilyn and Zach uh, for being here during the first segment of the Forensic Podcast here. And, uh, and of course, thank you, Frank, for being our special defense attorney. So We'll see what the jury decides. Yeah, see what the jury <laughs> decides, of course. Our listenership will, will, will say what our... Uh, Uh, how our podcast is doing. So that is it for our podcast here on the Weather Lounge. Thanks for listening to the show. Remember, we'll have a new podcast every two weeks. So feel free to visit back on your your podcasting app and, and we'll have a lot of great information for you. Remember, we are WeatherWorks. You can find us at weatherworksinc.com and on all kinds of social media platforms. So thanks again for listening, everybody.